Let us pray as we begin. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, we're a month into our study of the book of James. It's taken the bulk of this month to establish who James is uh, as the author of this letter, who he's writing to, and what some of the concerns are in his community, what scriptural sources James is fond of and using regularly, and what wisdom can be gleaned from this tightly packed book, wisdom like the dangers of favoritism, which we learned about last week. With all that established, we turn now to perhaps James's most iconic passage in his letter. For most people, when they think of the book of James, their immediate association is with his treatment of faith and works. Some people greet these words with a lot of joy and enthusiasm. These are key verses for them. Others greet them with suspicion and denial. Martin Luther notoriously downplayed the importance of the book of James, even going so far as to suggest that it should be removed from the biblical canon. The heart of his contention, the relationship between faith and works in chapter 2. So I think it's important for us today as we take a look at this iconic passage to do our very best to sift through God's word for us through James as he looks at the relationship between faith and works. I've been thinking about it a lot this week. I just returned from a family vacation uh, this last week in Glacier National Park in Montana. Um, it was as dreamy as we hoped. It was a bucket list place for us. And so it was, it was one of those places that is so sublimely beautiful that it feels fake um, when you're looking at it. Quentin uh, is our oldest, my son. He has a keen interest in asking persistent questions all the time. And we had a lot of time while hiking, hours on trail. So the questions just kept coming from him. Dad, what's the longest hike you've ever been on? Dad, how many national parks have you been to? And many times, this was, this was the most common question, Dad, is this the most beautiful place you've ever seen? That was the most asked question. And I would say, well, I've seen a lot of beautiful places. Well, like what? Well, like the Boundary Waters are beautiful. The Columbia Gorge is beautiful. There's lots of beautiful places that I've been to. Yeah, but is, is this more or less beautiful, Dad, than those places? He kept asking me to rate these beautiful places that we'd been to, and it was kind of driving me crazy. And I finally said, Quinn, I don't want to make a list. I don't want to rate these places. One is not necessarily better than the other. I'm thankful for all of them, and I don't really want to have to choose. I don't want to put a number on them. This highlights the truth for me that we tend towards absolutes, right? And sometimes we even feel like the Bible is forcing us towards one truth or another, one thing being more important than the other. We don't value, and sometimes we feel like we can't value the gray area in between, being able to say, hey, it's all, it's all kind of good. I have the same feeling about my, my back. Some of you know that I've had back problems in the past. I know some of you have too. It's been years since I've had my last issue, which I'm very, very thankful for. But I find it fascinating, and I've gone back to this many times, how people responded, even in this con mostly in this congregation, when I was experiencing some of my back pain. When people found out that I was living with back pain, one person would say, you've got to go see a chiropractor. Don't even consider surgery. 
don't ever do surgery. You have to go see a chiropractor. And then the next person I would talk to would say, I'm so glad I did back surgery. It really eliminated my pain. And for sure, don't ever go see a chiropractor. That's not real medicine. And then the next person would say, well, just do these stretches and you should be just fine. Or another person would say, you should try this kind of diet or this kind of herbal supplement. And it was crazy to me that I couldn't get two people to say the same thing. Nobody seemed to agree on how to treat back pain. And everyone was very, very passionate about their way of treating it. I wanted to say, isn't it possible that all of these could be good solutions for my back? Or does it need to be one over the other? I think that's how I feel often about faith and works. And I think some of us, many of you here probably do too. If we lean too much toward one faith or works, it means that we have to forsake the other, right? And I think it's fair to say that James leans kind of heavily into works throughout his letter, especially in this passage. Some of it seems to be at odds with the Apostle Paul, who leans heavily into faith by grace. And this causes some people to see James and Paul as contradictory forces. By all appearances, James does seem to contradict the Pauline doctrine of justification by faith. Paul says in Romans 3.28, For we maintain that a person is justified by faith, apart from observing the law, apart from works. Justified by faith. But then in James 2, 24, which was just read for us, we read, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. It's these sorts of apparent contradictions that cause people to go towards the absolutes, to camp in one or the other. But once we've moved beyond sort of the superficial there, the evidence is going to show us that Paul and James are actually in essential agreement about this. Yes, they might lean one way or the other. Their language might lean in one direction. But if they were both here today, I am supremely confident that they would stand in agreement on faith and works. And they would probably be grieved by the ways in which we polarized around the themes of faith and works. So let's look at the key verses, verses 14 through 17. And then I want to suggest three ways in which we commonly misunderstand this text, and that's going to help us ultimately understand the text a little better. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but do not have works? Can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked or lacks food, daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what good what is the good of that? So faith by itself has no works. If it has no works, it's dead. Faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. Okay, three ways that we commonly misunderstand this text. The first is we misunderstand what faith means to James. The way that we understand the word faith, James would probably see it a little bit differently. The New Testament word for faith is, is pistis. And it's, and it's a notoriously kind of slippery word. It's used in a lot of different ways. Paul and James actually use the word in the same way, as indeed Jesus uh, uses the word most of the time. For all of them, saving faith means acceptance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. and includes a, a, a personal commitment to, to Jesus and his mission. James is nuancing his use of the word in, of faith in a slightly different way. 
on a base level, faith is monotheistic belief. Okay, on, like on the, the most reduced level, monotheistic base, belief in one God. But that's not nearly enough. In the following verses, James will even say that the demons have a monotheistic faith. So what does, it, what does it mean for us to say that? You'll notice that James' question is not, what good is faith without works? But rather, what good is it to say you have faith, but do not have works? You see, I think we often read this passage and assume that James is making a distinction between two different kinds of faith, a real faith and a nominal faith. But this is simply not true. Nothing in this passage suggests that James believes in two different kinds of faith. For him, faith cannot be reduced to mere belief or even primarily belief in a set of beliefs. For James, faith is monotheistic belief plus a determination to nurture the word planted within, which we talked about in chapter 1, resulting in acts of Christian love. Either one has saving faith or one doesn't. There is no such thing as nominal faith to James. I like the way that Craig Blomberg puts it. Faith means full-orbed trust in Christ. Full-orbed trust in Christ. I think James would have liked that. Which leads us to our second misunderstanding. We misunderstand what works means for James. When Paul speaks of works... He's speaking of works in relation to Jewish law. The works of the law, which included good works of, of cleanliness and, and food and circumcision and Sabbath keeping. But for James, works were not works of the law. They were instead deeds of Christian love that fulfill a different kind of law, a royal law. Not the Torah law, but the law of the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of God. That's why he uses the examples that he does in verses 15 and 16. If Christians offer a word of encouragement to somebody when, when plainly they have needs that are there and we can meet those needs, that's not Christian love. That's falling short of the royal law of Jesus. For this reason, some commentators have suggested that instead of using the word works in the book of James, a, a better translation might be action. What good is it to say you have faith if you don't put it into action? And I like this translation because it avoids confusion with Paul's teaching against nomistic religion, a religion that's bound by the works of Jewish law. For James, these works are the actions of charity that flow from a life lived in harmony with Jesus. It seems clear to me that if we think of works in this way, the Apostle Paul would actually agree very much with James in Galatians 5, 6, Paul says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. The works that James is talking about are faith in action. Third, we misunderstand the context that James is writing to. So much of the discussion around these verses has been around the idea of dead orthodoxy, or what we might call empty religion. And don't mistake me, dead orthodoxy is a huge issue in our church today and in the world today. And this text has a lot to say about dead orthodoxy or empty religion. However, there's nothing in James's original situation that demonstrates that this is at the heart of 
the congregation's problems that he's writing to. If anything, these Christian believers with a, with a Jewish background would have, been more, would have been more likely to be overly consumed by certain kinds of works. Marks of national righteousness or dietary laws or Sabbath observance or liturgical prayers and so on and so forth. But James probably fears that they don't have the deeds of charity that those in the process of spiritual transformation inevitably demonstrate. So in other words, while nominal Christianity might be an issue for us today, and this text might speak to that, the opposite was probably true of James's readers. So with these three misunderstandings in mind, I just want to say that I'm saddened in, by the ways in which we tend to draw such severe lines between James and Paul. Paul is saying that we're justified by faith, and James is saying that we're justified by our works. These lines just simply aren't true. Verse 24 is key here to, to sort of bridge the gap for us. You see that a person is justified by works and not faith alone. While so many make James out to be solely works-focused, the key verse here makes the claim that our works are a demonstration of our faith. It's by people's actions that they prove the reality of their professions of faith to others and to God. St. Augustine, in the 4th century, perhaps resolves this tension between Paul and James on the issue of faith and works in the best way possible. He says, Paul said that a man is justified through faith without the works of the law, but not without those works of which James speaks. So here's what I would like to say, not as eloquently as Augustine, but here's what I want to say. I'm aware of the way in which Christian circles can treat the issue of faith like so many treat back problems. Some of you have been told that it's your works that save you. Like there's some cosmic scale of justice with, with one side representing what, what Christ has done for you and the other side representing all the things that you've done for Christ. And if this is you, it's likely that you've lived in fear that the scale is out of balance because you feel like you can never do enough to keep that scale where it needs to be that you failed to follow God's law and that the scales are never going to tilt in your favor no matter what you do. Others of you have been told that it doesn't matter what you do, that your works don't really matter at all, that God doesn't even care about what you do so long as you are resting in what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. That as long as you believe and confess the right things and, and you're focused on Jesus, then you don't have to think about anything else and, and to focus on works would, would be to pull you away from the God of grace. Yes, Christians have a tendency to swing too far in one direction or the other. So for those of you who have suffered under the weight of legalism, questioning whether anything you do will be enough, constantly concerned of how the scales are tilted, let me say, I am so sorry. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is not the biblical witness. And for those of you who have been sold on a proper doctrine and a message that belief in Jesus is, is all that is necessary for Christian life, let me say, I am so sorry. This is also not the gospel of Jesus. And it's also not the biblical witness. What I love so much about our denomination, this little movement called the Evangelical Covenant Church, 
is its tendency to pull towards the middle rather than the edges. And for that reason, I can stand before you today and lift up both faith and works, telling you that both are necessary. Paul and James agree on this, by the way. I would hope that we could agree on it, too. Dietrich Bonhoeffer offers a helpful view on this issue that I think gets at the heart of what James is writing in chapter 2. From his book, The Cost of Discipleship, written in 1937. Some of you know this is one of my favorite little books. It was written for the church in the advent of the rise of Nazism in Germany. This book is about what it really means to follow Jesus. The kind of faith that would ultimately make Bonhoeffer a martyr for Christ. In this brilliant book, he draws a distinction between what he calls cheap grace and costly grace. Cheap grace is the type of faith that doesn't necessarily lead to actions, to works, because it doesn't demand a changed heart. Of cheap grace, Bonhoeffer says, grace has a doctrine, a principle, a system. It means forgiveness of sins, proclaimed as a general truth, the love of God taught as the Christian conception of God, an intellectual assent, the idea is held to be of itself sufficient to secure remission of sins. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. In contrast to cheap grace, Bonhoeffer defines costly grace as the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake one will pluck out the eye which causes them to stumble. stumble. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. Bonhoeffer looked at his church in their setting and realized that cheap grace was simply not an option and that costly grace was the only way for them to live. He wrote that when Jesus called his disciples, it meant that faith can no longer mean sitting still and waiting. They must rise and follow him. The call frees them from all earthly ties and binds them to Jesus Christ alone. They must burn their boats and plunge into absolute insecurity in order to learn the demands and the gift of Christ. In Bonhoeffer's own way, he says that works or action both precede faith and are the consequence of Our issue today in our church is that it's too easy to live by cheap grace. Way too easy for us. A grace that demands nothing of us. <laughs> and I think we can agree, just as James would agree, and Paul would agree, and Jesus would agree, that cheap grace is not actually grace at all. That a cheap faith is not faith at all. Likewise, faith without works, is not even recognizable as a Christian faith. Yes, it is the grace of Jesus Christ which saves us, but it is also the grace of Jesus Christ that demands so very much of us. So my encouragement to you today is to not lean too heavily into just faith or only works, but that you would see them in harmony with one another that you might lean towards one naturally. That's, that's kind of normal for us. You might lean towards works or faith, faith or action. Maybe you lean towards Glacier or some other beautiful place. Maybe you lean towards the chiropractor or the surgeon. 
but actively pull towards the center rather than the edges. I believe that the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ is in the middle. It's at the intersection of faith and works. Rest deeply in your faith, the grace of Jesus, and then go show it in your actions, just as Jesus Christ has done for you. And as I think about the opportunity that we have this morning to come to this table for communion, is this not for us the perfect intersection for Jesus Christ himself of faith and works? Of a reminder of who we are in Jesus Christ and all that he has done for us? but also the call to go and do likewise, to give of ourselves just as Jesus gave himself for us. As we come to communion this day, as you are are served communion this day, I want both of those things. I want you to rest deeply in what Jesus Christ has done for you. And I want you to hear the call to say, Now go and put this faith, what you have experienced from me, the giver of all good gifts, go put that faith into action. Go put that faith into action. Because this is true following of Jesus. Knowing who we are and what it is that we're called to. So I want to invite you to come to this meal today. Not because you must, but because you may. Come not to testify that you are righteous, but that you sincerely love our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and desire to be his true disciples. Come not because you're strong, but because you're weak. Not because you have any claim on the grace of God, but because in your frailty and sin you stand in constant need of his mercy and his help. Come, not to express an opinion, to pray for God's presence, and to wait upon his spirit. Hear these words from the Apostle Paul. For I give to you what was also passed on to me, that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it, saying, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, After supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink this, remember me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray.